Well, as we come to the Word of God, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Our text for today is John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, which is the final section of John's prologue in which he introduces us to the themes he will unpack throughout the Gospels. After introducing us to the Word of God, excuse me, the Word who is God in Uh, and the light of men in verses 1 through 5. And after introducing us to a key witness and the responses to the light in verses 16, or rather 6 to 13, in this final section, John essentially answers the so what question. Why does it matter who Jesus is? He already alluded to this by introducing Jesus as the light of men, but but here he gets to the ultimate significance of why we should care to read and study this gospel. And it is this. Jesus reveals God to us. Jesus reveals God to us. Now, you might sit there and not be all that impressed with that because you've known Jesus for many years. You know your Bible. You've heard many sermons on the Gospels. You've done your own studies, perhaps. And so the idea of who God is doesn't strike you as particularly intriguing. You already know who He is. But imagine that's not the case. Imagine you're like most people in the world who have little to no exposure to the New Testament. Now, some of you might have a hard time imagining that. You've just grown up in the church. All you know is what you know about Christ. All you've ever known is that. But others of you were saved later on in life, and so it's not difficult for you to imagine what it's like to not know God. Most people in the first century and now do not know God. They don't know anything about Him. They may have heard some things, they may have imagined up some things, but they don't truly know Him. They don't know His character, His standards, His expectations. They don't know His disposition towards sinners and sufferers. They don't know what He cares about, what He values. They don't know His plans and His purposes and where all of this is headed. Among those who don't truly know God in and through Jesus Christ, there is widespread ignorance and apathy. And perhaps worse, in place of truth, there is actually a range of error. Everything from God loves everybody and doesn't care how we live to God hates everybody and doesn't care how we live because he's going to send us all to hell anyway. False religions, of course, have their own wrong ideas that are blasphemous about God. Well, it is ignorance and the false ideas about God that explains why there is so much chaos and destruction in the world today. We've said that many times throughout the Behold Your God series. The the Jews in John's day were longing for a Messiah who would rescue them and make things right. And people today are longing for someone to get into political power so that they can make things right. But in both cases, that longing is misplaced. Instead of looking in vain for someone just like us 
to solve our problems. We need God who alone is able because of His power and His wisdom and authority and righteousness. He alone is able to make things right. Well, after 400 years of prophetic silence, the Jews wondered, where is God? Like the Israelites in Egypt, they cried out for rescue from the Romans and those insane Herodians who couldn't care less about the people over whom they were ruling. Today, people wonder whether there is a God or they just assume that if one exists, it really doesn't matter. Beloved, Jesus came not only to accomplish the plan of salvation for us, to to live a sinless life and die a substitutionary death and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, but He came to do more than that. He came to make God known to us so that we would stop placing our hope in ourselves and in one another and rather put our hope and faith in God and God's provided Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that we might have life in His name. That's what Jesus came to do, to reveal God to us. Now, with that in mind, let's read verses 1 through 18 one final time as we consider this prologue. Paul, or excuse me, John writes, starting in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. John's purpose in this gospel is defined in John chapter 20, verse 31, is that you might believe, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in His name. And as we said last week, over the course of the gospel, John is going to bring forward uh, at least seven witnesses to testify to the truth that Jesus is the Christ. 
And the prologue is like his opening argument in this court case where he introduces to us the testimonies that we're going to be hearing throughout the gospel. And in this final section, then, he, he introduces the, uh, the, the final three critical statements that he has to give regarding the life of Jesus. Three critical statements, and we'll put, the, put, put them this way for our outline. The first critical statement that we'll see in verse 14 is Jesus is the glory of God beheld. Jesus is the glory of God beheld. Secondly, we'll see in verses 16 and 17 that Jesus is the grace of God received. The grace of God received. And then finally, in verse 18, we see that Jesus is the mystery of God revealed. The mystery of God revealed. Let's dive right in and look at verse 14 to see that Jesus is the glory of God beheld. Look at it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John began his gospel, as we just read in verse 1, by referring to Jesus, as he's named in verse 17, as the Word. But then in verse 4, he transitions to refer to Jesus as the light. So here, as he comes to the end of the prologue, he returns back to his original title and referring to him as the Word with with an emphasis to, to focus on the divine nature of Jesus the Christ. Remember, again, it says there in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning, which means that He is eternal like God. He had no beginning and He has no end. And so even though existence without time is incomprehensible to us, the reality is Jesus existed in the beginning with God. Before time began, in Genesis 1.1, the Word and God enjoyed an unbounded relationship of love and glory. I remind you of Jesus' words in John 17 where He prayed, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He went on to pray, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Glory and love characterize the relationship between the Father and the Son before time began. Now, we can't fathom the significance of this because the quality of our relationships are primarily defined by time, talking, and activities, right? And so when we think about a relationship between the Father and the Son before the world began, the question in our mind is, well, what were they doing? (laughs) What were they talking about? Well, such questions are misdirected because they forget that God is utterly unlike us. And the inter-Trinitarian relationships are outside and beyond our ability to grasp. But what we can grasp, what God has revealed to us, is that they had a close relationship of love and affection and unity and joy. Of that much, Scripture is clear. Together, they share in the full divine nature, and there is nothing that any of them lacks. 
they are all equal in majesty and power and splendor and authority. Each member of the Trinity is omniscient and omnipresent and uh, omnipotent. A Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equally exist as the full essence of the glory of God. When Solomon finished the temple, he said this in his prayer of dedication. He said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. His theology was dead on. The Most High cannot be confined to a little house on a little hill in a little country on a little planet. The Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah, do I not fill heaven and earth? I mean, as you drive home this afternoon, look around at the sky above and look as far as you can. In the night, look up at the sky and consider the unquantifiable size of our universe. God fills all of it. Scripture says that the heavens are His throne and the earth is His footstool. Nothing can contain Him. So what John says here in verse 14 is beyond comprehension. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, it's not John's purpose to give us a philosophical or theological explanation of how the Word, who is God, could somehow become flesh. He simply just states it as a matter of fact. Theologically, we call this the hypostatic union, which simply means that Jesus subsisted, He existed as two natures in one person. Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is one person with two natures. And those two natures are, as it's been said, without change, division, or separation. Or as our beloved former Pastor Dave would say, Jesus was not God in a bod, meaning he had a human nature along with a body. He was not God in a blender, which means would otherwise indicate that his human and divine natures were intermixed. They weren't. And he was not God with a bud. He was not God and man as two distinct people in somehow one, one entity of a person. No, he was, just simply put, one person with two natures, truly God and truly man. And, and that's about as far as we can go with what the Scripture says. We call the Word becoming flesh His incarnation, which literally means His enfleshment. Now, we know that the word flesh many times in Scripture is used to refer to the sinful nature in us. The, the flesh is negative most often in Scripture, but not here. John simply means to emphasize the flesh and the blood, the stuff of which we're made, which is not just small in size compared to the immensity of God, but is frail in composition compared to the indestructible life of God. Coming to earth, Jesus didn't inhabit a body that was unique from ours. He lived in a body that hungered and thirsted and ached and grew weak and tired. Unlike the mythical gods whose bodies had special powers and abilities and strengths, 
No, Jesus' body was just like ours with all of its frailties. He didn't just have the capacity for frailty. He actually experienced it. He, he came as a baby in the most vulnerable way. He grew as a boy. He matured in stature and wisdom. He ultimately became a man. And before he began his ministry, he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. And that left him so debilitated that the father, after the temptation with the devil, the father sent angels to minister to him and strengthen him. And then three years later, at the very end of his ministry on earth, he collapsed in the Garden of Eden. So overweighed down by the anticipation of the physical and spiritual suffering he was about to experience that he couldn't hold himself up anymore. So once again, the Father sent an angel to strengthen him. Jesus knew bodily weakness. Though he himself did not have a sinful nature, he experienced life in a sin-cursed world just as we do, which is why the author of Hebrews can say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in dwelling among us, he didn't walk on the outskirts of society, avoiding contact with the likes of us, unaffected by the harsh realities of life. No, he dwelt among us, with us. The verb in verse 14 translated dwell literally means to pitch a tent. But the focus is not on the act of pitching a tent, but rather on the intent of pitching a tent, which in the ancient times was to dwell, to live. So perhaps you've heard that the word tabernacled among us. That would be the Old Testament word for tent, a tabernacle. And when we use that word, it helps our mind to connect with how God dwelled with his people in the tabernacle. When the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, he gave instructions and the people built the tabernacle, which is where the Lord manifested his presence among them. And in the tabernacle, the Lord dwelled with his people. But there was always a barrier between him and them. Uh, only the Levites could enter into the grounds of the tabernacle. Only certain priests could enter the holy place. And only the high priest could enter the holy of holies, and that only once a year. So the glory of God manifested inside the tabernacle, resided with, dwelled among his people, but it was veiled and inaccessible to pretty much everyone. But here, John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. The we refers to the same group as the us among whom the word dwelt. And he means to say that Jesus dwelt among the people of the land and all who were exposed to him were exposed to his glory. Now, what does he mean by glory? What, what did they see that was the glory of the word? Well, he goes on to say, glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This brings us back to the last message in the Behold Our God series, where 
We looked at Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Remember that in Exodus 33, Moses was standing on the mountain talking to the Lord, and Moses pleaded with God, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, okay, Moses, I will show you my glory. And so the Lord put the excellencies of his divine nature on full display, proclaiming to Moses the magnificent refractions of his character. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That glory of God, like the sun, casts light on the whole Old Testament, helping us understand the heart of God behind all that He does. Those qualities of God are repeated many times throughout the Old Testament, but they are eventually condensed down to their most dense elements, which in really encapsulate the whole of it, and the, the way it's encapsulated and distilled is in the two, two words in Hebrew, steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, I remind you, translates chesed, which is God's unilateral, unconditional commitment to work for the good of His people. That's grace. And faithfulness translates amet, which means faithfulness or truth. Though the steadfast love and faithfulness of God are heralded together dozens of times throughout the Old Testament, there's only two times where they they are directly and specifically referred to in the New Testament. Here in verse 14, grace and truth, and then again in verse 17, grace and truth. In the New Testament, we only have two references to the glory of God as God revealed himself. I used to find that amazing and perplexing. (laughs) Really, until I was studying for this message. And then it occurred to me why there is so little attention given in the New Testament to Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The answer is this, because in the New Testament, the reason it's only twice in the New Testament, the glory of God is not represented best by the words, grace and truth or steadfast love and faithfulness. In the New Testament, the glory of God is best represented, are you ready? By the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't replace steadfast love and faithfulness or grace and truth. He embodies them. He is the flesh and blood embodiment of the glory of God as described in Exodus 34. He is the fullest and most perfect manifestation of grace and truth. And notice how it said there in verse 14, Glory as of the only Son from the Father. You may have it differently in your translation, but here's what John's getting at there. The glory of the Father is most clearly and powerfully revealed in Exodus 34. We know that as from the testimony of the Old Testament. 
But as the, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God is the image of the Father, Colossians 1.15. Therefore, as the one and only, which is to say the utterly unique Son of God, the glory of Jesus is the glory of the Father, and that's why He is full of grace and truth. And so as we study the Gospel of John, we'll see example after example of how He demonstrates grace to those who suffered and to those who are trapped in sin. We'll see how He faithfully fulfills the promises of God and testifies to the truth even in the face of opposition. We'll see how He graciously forgives sin and again faithfully fulfills God's promises. Jesus lived out the glory of God in daily life and it was seen and experienced by all who were around Him. That's the glory of God beheld. Oh, beloved, let us rejoice that while we were not there, we can take up and read the Scripture and we can read about the Word who became flesh and manifested the glory of God. We can hear His words and we can see His actions and from a distance we can marvel at the glory of God as He cared for the lost and the broken and the hurting and how He responded to the obstinate and unbelieving and how He ultimately gave of His own life as an expression of grace and steadfast love for His people. Jesus is the glory of God beheld. If you want to see the glory of God like Moses wanted to see it, look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now before we move on to the grace of God received, look at verse 15. You might have noticed I left that out of the outline. John says there, John bore witness, speaking of John the Baptist, about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Here, the, the Apostle John interrupts himself, really, to make a footnote about John the Baptist. They didn't have footnotes in uh, ancient manuscripts, and so this would be a footnote in a book today. So I'll only say a word about this because John actually quotes the very same words of John the Baptist, again, in, down in verse 30 of chapter 1. But he inserts it here to make it absolutely clear that not only did he testify that the light was coming, which we see in verses uh, 6 and 7 and 8, but he knew who Jesus was. John the Apostle is not saying something that John the Baptist didn't know. No, John the Baptist knew exactly who Jesus was, that he was indeed the Word made flesh. He knew that though Jesus was born several months after himself, remember John the Baptist was born first, then several months after Jesus. And in that sense, Jesus came after him, but Jesus existed before John, and because of that, he held a higher rank. We'll talk about what that means in a few weeks. But again, John throws this in as a point of clarification that he's not declaring something about Jesus that was unknown to John the Baptist. So we'll come back to that. We'll look then at verses 16 and 17 to see that Jesus is the grace of God received. The grace of God received. He writes, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here the Apostle John declares that the Word made flesh did not just come to be seen, He came to give. And what did He give? He gave Himself. This is what it means when it says, from His fullness we have all received. We have all received from His fullness. We received Him. He he did not bring gifts with Him. He brought Himself. And out of the infinite treasures of of His nature, He gives to all who trust in Him. In Christ, Colossians 2.3 says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So when we get Christ, we get wisdom and knowledge. Ephesians 1.3 says, in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christ became to us, 1 Corinthians 1.30, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. These passages highlight that that all of those things, wisdom and knowledge and blessing in the heavenly places and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, those are not all gifts that Jesus hands to us from the Father. No, those are things that belong to us because we get Christ Himself. Jesus gave Himself and He is truly all that we need. One of my favorite books by John Piper that I never hear anyone talk about is called God is the Gospel. God is the gospel. And in it, he makes a simple and all-important point that the gospel is not the good news that you get stuff from God. You know, like a mansion from heaven or in heaven or everlasting life or a heavenly treasure or perfect bodies. If our gospel proclamation is about all the stuff that you can get from God, we really become salesmen of heavenly wares. May it never be. Our gospel is the good news that if you believe in Christ, you get God. You get reconciliation with God who made you and loves you and gave His life to rescue you from your sin. The most glorious reality we will experience in eternity, the highest ecstasy we will enjoy, is this. God will dwell with us and we will be His people. And He, not anyone else, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. Revelation 21.5 4 All these years you've been praying in the air feeling like no one is listening will be no more because God will be right there. All those tears you've cried not feeling someone's arm around you will be comforted by His warm embrace. All those joys you've wanted to scream from the mountaintops but you had no one to talk to, you can celebrate with Him. Again, I say, Jesus didn't come to give us stuff. He came to give us Himself. And because He is God, He can give to each one infinitely and never deplete Himself. Now, so far, all I've said pertains to believers. Only believers can receive God in the way that I've just described from the Scripture. But what about unbelievers? Because did you notice 
that when that John says there, we have all received. And if the us and the we in verse 14 refers to the general population at the time of Christ who saw and experienced him, including those who didn't believe, then when John says we have all received, he must be taking that group and expanding it even to include all of humanity, perhaps most specifically to anyone who would read his letterer's gospel. If that's the case, in what way do unbelievers receive from the fullness of God? The atheist receives what he asks for. He says, prove that God exists and I will believe. Show him to me. And we can say, the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to see God? There he is, the Lord Jesus Christ. The agnostic says, how can I know if Christianity is the only right religion? And we say the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only God. In Jesus Christ, the world can see the glory of God so that they are without excuse. Not only do they receive the glory of God displayed in creation, Romans 1 and Psalm 19, but they receive the glory of God displayed in the life of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. Now, you know that if you tell an atheist, well, just look at the Lord Jesus Christ, there's God. He's not going to bow down and be like, okay, you, you got me. But he got what he asked for. God gave him himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Add to that, all people receive the assurance of coming judgment. Paul said in Acts 17, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the world receives proof of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and they receive proof of the assurance of judgment in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But most gloriously of all, all those who do not yet know Christ receive from the fullness of God the free offer of salvation. Come, Jesus says. In Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are weary, laden, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In John chapter 7, at the end of a Jewish feast day, when Jerusalem was swollen with crowds, Jesus stood up and he cried out, it says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We know John 3.16. For God so loved the world and that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the free offer of salvation that is available to everyone. Because out of the fullness of God, Christ has given 
himself. In these passages and other places, we find that free offer of salvation made without reservation. All of that is a grace from God. It's a grace that's received by us, even if we don't know him. That's what, call, uh, that's what John calls it there at the end of the verse. He calls it grace. Jesus gives himself out of his fullness, and that is grace. But it's not just grace. He says it's grace upon grace. Now, what does that mean? Well, grace upon grace refers to the two demonstrations of grace from God defined in verse 17. Look at that. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ grace the law was the law given through moses was a grace from god now think about carefully about this the new testament speaks about the requirements of the law as being contrary to grace because if you try to obey the law as a means to justify yourself before a holy god you will fail and in that sense law is not grace it is judgment but that's not how john uses law here. He's not referring to it as a system of justification. He's referring to the law of God as the revelation from God. The law given through Moses was not limited to the commands given by God. The the Jews referred to the five books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, as the law. We've been seeing that even in Psalm 19, where the word law is a reference really to all of Scripture. In the commands, we see justice and the righteousness and the moral character of God. But beyond the commands, we see the words and the works of God as as He works in and through His people and for His people. Note that in the first 12 sermons in the Behold Your God series, 11 of them came out of Genesis and Exodus. God graciously revealed Himself in the law given through Moses. And as we saw so often, he revealed himself as the God of grace. It's true that many characterize the essence of God in the Old Testament as full of anger and wrath. But that is to blind yourself from the extraordinary amount of grace that God shows. Psalm 103 verse 10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Yes, there are times when God's justice and God's wrath comes down swiftly and decisively, but that is exceptionally rare. I mean, just think about it. The reason we have an Old Testament telling telling us the history of God's work among His people, the reason we have a New Testament, an accounting of God's work in the world in and through Christ and His followers, the reason that you and I are sitting here alive today is because in His grace, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Imagine if the Bible ended at Genesis 6 with the flood. It doesn't because God is gracious. He is patient and and He extends life and opportunities to repent. And even when sinners don't repent, He works through them to advance His gracious purposes on the earth and to give birth to a new generation who also have the opportunity to repent and turn to God. 
in the law given through Moses, we not only see the, the grace of God, but we receive it because the God of that law is the faithful and merciful and compassionate God that we worship today. We experience comfort and encouragement and strength knowing God as He reveals Himself in the law. But now, in Christ, the Word made flesh, we receive grace and truth in its fullest expression. Not just as something that God did back then, and not just as something of who God is, but now it's been worked out through the cross and in our lives as the Spirit dwells within us today. All who God revealed Himself to be in the law, Christ is. And all who God was for His people Israel, Jesus Christ is for all those who believe. And because the Holy Spirit sent from the Father and the Son dwells within believers today, we receive and experience all of who God is for our good and comfort and joy. The climax of the glory of God is displayed in Christ at the cross. And that permeates our lives and yields for us forgiveness and freedom and wisdom and strength and motivation. These things and much more come to us in Christ. Jesus is the grace of God received and we have received from His fullness grace upon grace. So far we've seen that Jesus is the glory of God beheld and the, and the grace of God received. We come then to the final critical truth about Jesus that Jesus is the mystery of God revealed. Look at verse 18. He says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Here John declares that though God has been a mystery to mankind throughout history, in that He could not be seen, Jesus has removed the veil and shown God to us. Now, I use the word mystery there to refer to the invisibility of God. Man, uh, mankind has always been subject to God's revelation. Mankind cannot discover God on his own. He can't search and find God as if he's some place or some object in creation that we can find and see. God always had to initiate revelation so that mankind would know him. So when John says that no one has seen God, he means just that. No human being in their natural state has ever had a direct line of sight to the unmitigated manifest presence of God. Yes, God revealed himself in human form to various people. He walked with Adam and Eve. He came and talked with Abraham. He stood before Joshua. And then also Isaiah, Ezekiel, and even the Apostle John had spiritualized as they were translated up in a vision and they saw God uh, in a vision. Even that nearly destroyed them. Moses, as we saw in Exodus 34, saw the afterglow of God because God said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. So no one has ever seen the unmitigated glory of God in their own natural state. Remember that God has no a corporeal body, no, no physicality. He's not made up of molecules and atoms and matter. That's what allows him to be omnipresent. That He's not limited by matter in space and time. 
Yes, he can manifest himself in a location such as his throne room in heaven or as a man on earth or in various ways as he does throughout Scripture, but those manifestations don't represent the fullness of the being of God. When Israel saw the cloud of fire by night and the the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day leading them through the wilderness, they could not say that's God because it wasn't God. That simply signaled the presence of God. Most of God's manifestations were not manifestations of himself, but phenomenon that signaled his presence like the burning bush. God was not the burning bush. God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, Scripture says. As the infinite, holy, transcendent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, he cannot be encapsulated and contained in a physical form. This is why John can say no one has ever seen God. But you know who has seen God? The Word. Who is God? The Word who, is, who John refers to when he says there, the only God who is at the Father's side. Literally, that, that says the only God who is in the bosom of the Father. Remember that in verses 1 and 2, when he says that the Word was with God, it's as though they were face to face together. They, they didn't just coexist. They were actually in relationship with one another. And here, John draws in our minds a a picture of a child leaning on the the breast of his father. That level of closeness and intimacy means that Jesus has not only seen the father, but they share an unparalleled bond of love and relational intimacy. And did you notice the tense there? He says, who is at the Father's side, not who was at the Father's side. John isn't looking back in eternity past saying that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. He's saying that Jesus, the only God, is in the bosom of the Father. That's where He is right now. And that's where He went at His ascension. With nothing more than a simple verb tense, John inserts a hint of what We're going to read, namely, that Jesus promised that after the resurrection, he would ascend back to the Father. Now, here's the point of what John is saying here. The the one and only God who has uh, personally seen and known the Father, John says here at the end of verse 18, he has made him known. Other translations say he has explained him, he has declared him, or he has revealed him. The, the word is used several times in the book of Acts to describe how the apostles related accounts of what God was doing as the gospel was spreading to new places. So you could say that the word uh, made him known or explained or declared simply means to, to reveal that which is unknown, to explain not only the facts, but the meaning of something. Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made the Father known. He he doesn't just communicate to us words from God as a prophet would do. Now, Jesus pulls back the veil and reveals to us the heart and the mind of God. How does He do this? Well, as we'll see throughout the Gospel, Jesus doesn't merely tell us about the Father. He lives out who the Father is 
such that to the degree to which we see Jesus and hear Jesus, we are seeing and hearing the Father. To the degree that we come to understand the the heart and the mind of Christ through His words and His actions and His interactions, we will know what the Father is like. In John 5, Jesus drew attention to their intimate relationship when he said, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. In John 12, 49, Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. In other words, the, the, their relationship was so intimate that the Father was presenting to Jesus what he wanted him to do and to say. And Jesus, in in loving and joyful submission, imitated and followed the Father. Speaking of their joint work in caring for the flock, Jesus says in John 10, My Father who has given them to me, meaning his sheep, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So there is no daylight between Jesus... And the Father. So when Philip says to Jesus in John 14, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? Here's the point, beloved. If you want to know God, If you want to know what God is like, get to know God the Son. If you want to understand the heart of God, come to understand the heart of Christ. There's no distinction between knowing God and knowing Christ. You can't know one and be ignorant of the other. When someone tries to drive a wedge between compassionate Jesus and the irritable Father, they show that they don't know either of them. The heart of the Father is the heart of the Son. They're they're in complete unity in their mind and plans and purposes. The mercy and compassion and grace and love and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness and goodness and justice of God are wrapped in Christ. And they are in Christ because they are all true of God. Jesus cannot be what the Father is not. And the Father cannot be what what Christ is not. So again, do you want to see God? Look at the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of His person in all that He said and, he, and did as recorded in the Gospels. Observe how He ministers to sinners, how He comforts sufferers, how He challenged the self-righteous. And in all that you see, know that you are seeing and hearing God Himself engage with mankind. Again, I say, if atheists and agnostics want, want to know, uh, want to have proof of God, if they, if they want to see God, if they want to know what God is like, the Word made flesh revealed Him. God is no longer a mystery. Now, yes, there is far more about God than we are able to know. There's many things about God that we can't begin, cannot begin to comprehend. We may not be able to know God fully, but we can know God truly because Christ has made him known. My friend, if you do not know God, 
If you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you can meet God today in the person of Jesus Christ. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper and this is a symbol given to us by Jesus Christ so that we would keep in our minds the reminder that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And though He faced all the same challenges and difficulties that you and I face, all the heartaches, He yet lived a sinless life. And though He did not deserve to die, He gave His life on the cross to pay the penalty that sinners deserve. Death is what you and I deserve because of our sin against God. And yet God has made a way by giving of His Son so that you might be forgiven and reconciled to God who loves you and will grant you new life in Him if you but acknowledge your sin and your need for a Savior. So believe that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the glory of God beheld, the grace of God received, and the mystery of God revealed. All of the truths that we've considered these last few weeks, we will slow down and unpack as they come up throughout the gospel. But church, we need to hear these truths for the strength of our own souls and our own faith. And we, we all know others who need to hear these truths so that they might believe. Be praying about who you can talk to about the Lord Jesus Christ. Be praying about who you might invite to come to church to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider asking someone to read the Gospel of John with you at work or over lunch and just talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. The world wants to talk about celebrities and politicians and world events, but there is no greater person that we can talk about than the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. As I pray, the men can come to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Father, we, we know there's so much more that we could say. Is, this is such a densely packed portion of Scripture and our minds are weak and we need your help, Holy Spirit, to understand these truths. Not just to understand them intellectually, but to understand their significance and then to delight in them and rejoice and then tell others about them. Lord Jesus, we rejoice that you became to us God in the flesh. That you brought all of who you are and you gave of yourself that we might have life. And now as, as we celebrate your supper, as we remember your sacrifice for our sin, may you be glorified as we worship you. In Christ's name, amen.